I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to restaurateur, chef, and media personality, David Chang. I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm some kind of genre. I've never said my food's Korean. I've never said that my food's Asian. I've never said that it's Southern. I've always said that it's American food. I look at what America is as food, and it's genuinely everything else, right? It's not America. It's literally immigrant food. Since David Chang first opened Momofuku Noodle Bar here in New York in 2004, he's been forging a legacy of food that doesn't restrict itself to national or cultural boundaries. He's now opened over a dozen restaurants, ranging from the luxury tasting menu at New York's Momofuku Co. to the fast casual fried chicken joint Fuku. You can find his restaurants in New York, L.A., and really all over the world. Amidst this growing empire, I think David is highly aware of the legacy that he's building upon. He's said that the word momofuku translates to lucky peach, but I think it's no coincidence that it's also the name of legendary inventor of instant ramen, Momofuku Ando. Chang is also increasingly involved across the media landscape as a podcast host on The Dave Chang Show and on Netflix with his newest travel series, Ugly Delicious, which explores the evolution of dishes or concepts from regions around the world. Joe recently had a chance to talk with David about these new pursuits and much more. Thanks so much for coming in. Excited to be here. So how do you think food is a vessel for storytelling? Well, food is maybe the least... uh, How should I say this? I don't think people would realize how important food is other than like nutrition and sustenance. But the fact is everyone needs to eat. Everyone would rather eat well. And it it just is like a artifact of culture of both past, present, and where it's going to go. So in some ways, it's the best way to talk about some really important, very difficult subjects. On Ugly Delicious, in the first episode, you you eat dominoes, and you talk a lot about how food is kind of tied to memory, too. I think you try to associate food, at least I do, um, food with good memories growing up. There's like two kinds of cooking. There's cooking that you're trying to nourish and feed someone, and that's something I feel like uh, I I experienced growing up as a kid uh, with my grandmother and mother making me food. And later, as a professional cook, I think it's less about nourishing and more about feeding one's ego a little bit. And I think there's got to be a better compromise between those two, especially in a professional kitchen. So one is about trading new identity, new memories, and that is the kind of cooking you see in a professional kitchen that wins awards and such. Not all cooking, but the cooking that I've learned from. And then you have cooking that is about literally trying to take care of another person. And that is something I feel like has gotten lost along the way, at least for myself, can't speak for anyone else. And I'm trying to get some balance to that. There's got to be a happy compromise for me to be able to find a way to cook things that I may not have appreciated in the past um, or seen how important they were. So home cooking to me is always tied with some of the best parts of growing up. And nostalgia can be a weird thing. It can be used to cover up some difficult moments in one's life. But food, for the most part, when you eat something delicious, it's very hard to associate that with tough times. Um, and even in tough times, when uh, when I sp- I've spoken to people that, you know, have had very difficult upbringings, 
oftentimes like sharing a meal is the highlight of their family and growing up. So if you can, as a chef, what I would like to do is find a way to create those memories through new food experiences. Interesting. So is there a food that you, when you were growing up, that, that kind of triggers all those memories for you besides Domino's? Yeah, well, you know, quickly speaking about Domino's, I think another thing that food can be is about judgment. And more and more when I interact with the world or experience new things, I'm trying to reserve my judgment on something. And Domino's Pizza was one of the first pizzas I grew up in eating regularly. Growing up in Northern Virginia, but at that time was sort of just farmland. Now it's obviously pretty very well developed, but I loved Domino's growing up as a kid. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. And occasionally that nostalgia wins out. And sometimes I order Domino's. And I think that as a food person, and and I think snobbery can be so extreme in food culture. Uh, foodies is, uh, is a term I don't love, but everyone's in pursuit of what is the best and the most artisanal and so on and so forth. But a lot of people don't have means or maybe like for myself, like, I could easily envision my life where I never left Northern Virginia, and it's quite simply possible that I could think that Domino's is still the best pizza. It doesn't make me a dummy, right? right? Just because I didn't get to interact with the world, and I've been very fortunate to actually go out and taste some of the greatest pizza in the world, and I think it's a very relative pragmatist stance, is that just because someone doesn't know better doesn't mean that they're not valid, right? They're, their food ideas can't have weight. So, you know, I don't even know where to begin. Once I go down this road, I can never come back. <laughs> I mean, I've been in defense of the handmade pan for, for years now. Pan pizza's great. yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and that's the thing is, like, if it brings you joy, right, why should you feel embarrassed about it? Right. And I feel like there's so much conversation now, now starting to happen around privilege. And I'm wondering, you know, is this idea starting to kind of permeate in the cooking world beyond what we're talking about right now, beyond just us in this room? Slowly. Things happen to change very slowly in the food world. It's, I think, for the most part, and I don't know the reasons why, it's uh, resistant to change. Do you think ramen is kind of part of this this world? When you think of ramen in New York, you think of expensive and or even kind of mid-level. Mm-hmm. But when you think of it in Japan, obviously it's incredibly cheap often and, you know, you get it in the subway. Well, it can be expensive too, right? But the thing about ramen, it was, in my opinion, it evolved because it was uh, of the subculture, right? Uh, and I'm not going to say ja- Japanese culture is sort of rigid and caste-like, but it sort of is, particularly when it comes to food. I, I often joke that the, the great documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, um, what doesn't get re- sort of represented is Jiro Dreams of Sushi because he can only dream of sushi, Right, he's not allowed to to have dreams of pizza or opening up a yakitori spot. It, you know, the die is cast pretty early on when you decide to go down the rabbit hole of whatever path you choose or allowed to choose. And ramen to me was again not a, it's affordable. It doesn't always, it's not always cheap. It's not always expensive, but it's affordable for the amount of labor and love that goes into a bowl of soup. And it was sort of representative of some kind of counterculture that was very appealing to me when I spent time in Japan. In in America, 
what I realized when I tried to open up Momofuku Noodle Bar in 2004 was eating great food affordably with great ingredients, weirdly enough, didn't exist in 2004. Um, and the fact is, is all of these people that noodle soups, because noodle soups is not new, but the specific genre of ramen wasn't necessarily new either, but the, the f- sort of fervor and passion I saw that the Japanese have for ramen is very similar to barbecue, regionalism, pizza, fried chicken, all of these things that people love. And I was like, this has to be, this feeling has to be sort of universal. So it was a matter of time before I think ramen sort of took off. And we've been on this sort of 15-year ramen boom since. And so were these kind of the things that were swimming in your head when you first opened Momofuku Noodle Bar? I, you know, open Momofuku Noodle Bar without really any clear idea of what the goal was going to be. I just sort of think, you know, in retrospect, it seems to be pretty clear to me now. But if I had to put myself back at the age of 26, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, I think we, when I say we, it was probably me and Joaquin Bach at the time. But we were trying to prove people wrong, I think, including ourselves, and very much looked at the opportunity to run a 600-square-foot restaurant as, um, you know what, if this goes down in bankruptcy, it doesn't really matter. Well, I'll find a way to pay it back. I'll find a way to declare bankruptcy. And all of the things that I was sort of afraid of, all of a sudden, I wasn't afraid of anything. I wasn't afraid of failure, all right? And uh, we failed a lot, <laughs> and, and that allowed us to sort of grow. You talk a lot about this iterative process. Can you speak a little to that? Has that always been intentional too, or are you just kind of like a once the ball gets rolling kind of thing, figure it out as you go? Um, this is funny. I, I talk about this ideation uh, quite a bit with my younger cooks and chefs. And when I say younger, I'm talking about like years of experience, um, you know, in the kitchen because there's something about uh, having an idea in your head that I've learned over the years doesn't work if you edit in your head. Like, I'm not a genius. I don't think anyone can truly be a genius in in the craft that we do. Um, people are certainly more talented than, than others, but you're not born as this, like, perfect prodigy. It's literally, cooking is literally the definition of screwing up over and over and over again. Some people screw up less, right? But for me... Um, I think I learned pretty early on that when I was going to start this restaurant that no one was going to teach me anything else, that I had to learn it on my own accord. And the idea that I was sort of free to make mistakes in a very transparent fashion because we had an open kitchen, everything was right in front of everyone, that warts and all had to be in front. It just, there was nowhere to hide. So I, I was very vocal and very open about the mistakes that I would made. L- literally from burning myself to making a bad dish, I had nowhere to hide. And what I learned along the way, and I don't think I would have done this had I had a closed kitchen or had a larger budget to work with, was if I make a mistake, it's only a mistake if I leave it there, right? And I don't know exactly what the end goal is going to be. We all have an idea of where we would like to be. So I, I'm sort of goal-oriented. I'm very competitive with myself, and I sort of have a feel. I I, I know how I want to feel about a dish. I know how I, I think I want a customer to leave our restaurant feeling something. 
And that feeling is what I'm trying to reverse engineer. How do I get there? I'm open to anything and everything. And the more I sort of close myself off to potential avenues, I tend to screw it up. I, I sort of phrase it as don't edit your idea in your head. And I think part, there's a lot of reasons why people would do this if they're making a dish. Um, they don't want to be seen as someone that's sloppy or dumb or someone that makes a mistake because there's an air of I have to look like I'm better than everyone else. Two, people are sort of just lazy, right? Like they don't want to screw it up and they feel like, oh, if I just eliminate this step and I just do this and they do this in their head, right? Let's just say whatever dish, they think they can edit version like 10 through 20 in their head. And I don't think they realize that if they actually go through every version of every iteration and really critically think through all the mistakes as to why it didn't work, and they're just tenacious to get to that goal, two things I think happen. One is they don't get there, right? And it's just something they have to shelve for a later date, and it happens all the time. Or what happens more often than not, at least myself, is you get to a point and you never thought you were gonna get there because you had no idea what kind of mistakes you were gonna make. And as long as you keep that like a living, breathing organism, and it's, it's, it's the best, I guess the best way to describe it is like driving a car and anytime you make a decision that is binary, that's an either or proposition, you screwed it up, right? And that's like turning into like, you know, like a, a closed neighborhood, right? I want to constantly be going into different highways and in different avenues that lead to more and more different doors. And that's a crazy thing to tell a young aspiring cook. Like, wait a second, you're telling me to screw up? What? doesn't make any sense. And even if you don't follow any of your intuition when you're like doing every iteration, if you're thoughtful about it, it really prepares you for future moments, right? It's like watching game film per se in sports. So it's a weird way to think about the creative process. But again, for me, it's been about making as many mistakes as possible and, and learning from them. Well, it feels like an honest way of thinking about the creative process. Fighting back against that idea that you just kind of come out of the womb with talent or with this perfect idea, it takes time to develop it. So you developed a really clear way of talking about this idea. Is this something that you've talked about a lot with chefs that you're mentoring when you're opening up a new space? I talk quite a bit with my chefs uh, anytime I can sort of mentor them. And honestly, I think this is a lot of my conversations with my shrink. <laughs> <laughs> You know, our series is called American Masters. I feel like you're kind of talking about what it means to be a master at something. Uh, I can't remember the Japanese term for... Shokunin. Shokunin. So what do you think it takes to be an American master? That's funny, though, because I know I'm here for the title series of American Masters, and it's not a humble brag. It's it just maybe some distortion in my own ability to see myself, but I don't think of myself as a master of anything. Really, like in, 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 especially in the culinary world, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a precision like chef. I'm not technically an expert. I'm proficient at a lot of things. And I'm not like on a pure actionable level better than a lot of my peers. And I think that's frustrating to me and to my peer group. The only thing that I think I've gotten to be good at as mastery is to not give up, right? And I, I somehow found the perfect medium that's perfect for my sort of stubbornness to never stop, like to constantly iterate. If I'm going to 
it's a really painful process, but every time I fail, I have to pick myself up and just throw myself at it again and again. If that's mastery, I, I don't, it doesn't sound very romantic. It just seems quite frankly foolish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been to Sambar and, and, you know, the skate tastes more than proficient. And I've been to the noodle bar a few times too. It's a little more than proficient. But a lot of that is the, the group of people that make up Momofuku. I get way too much credit for a lot of the dishes. Like that skate dish, that's Max Ings. And he's been with me almost eight years. But, you know, can I take credit for bringing him on board and, and, and like helping him mature? But when he came in the sambar, I said, listen, like, I'm going to put you here and you're going to figure out your own voice. But more specifically, it's not about cooking anymore. It's about learning how to communicate. It's learning about being a leader, being, you know, having a strong moral compass. Somehow along the way, he had a lot of ideas, and that skate dish is representative of him um, coming from Singapore, right? And there's other skate dishes along the way that I could tell you exactly what was going on at that moment in time. I think there's probably like three to four different sort of iconic skate dishes for Sambar. So I don't know, like... I constantly wonder what it is that I do that makes some things work. It's very hard for me to understand. Going back to this idea of American master, you know, the American part of it, I feel like, is also something that is sometimes controversial when people talk about your food and and other food that I think is combining cuisines. Uh, What do you think makes a dish American? Wow. I have a lot of thoughts on this because I feel like so much of my life has been about finding my identity. And I'm 41 years old now, and I think I'm finally comfortable in my own skin. And I think being American for me has been about discovery of what matters to me, right? And I, I'm so reluctant to say that American has to be one thing because I feel like that's how problems get created. And if anything, I interpret my American experience about figuring out how I fit into this world here in America, how I was raised in the Northern Virginia and D.C. area and where I went to school, went abroad, so on and so forth. But so much of it was a re- like so much of my life was a rejection of all the things that I was supposed to be. And once I start started to realize that I can only do the things that I should feel confident about right? The things that scare me about myself, that's the things that I want my food to represent. And American for me is I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm some kind of genre. I've never said my food's Korean. I've never said that my food's Asian. I've never said that it's Southern, like the American South. I've always said that it's American food. And there's like some, to paraphrase what Wolfgang Puck has said, someone that's been instrumental in my career, it's like, American food is an amalgamation. of It's the greatest melting pot of culinary cuisines in the world. That's what American food is. And when you really look at just any food in general, it's all fusion. It's all some kind of point of view that is easier to understand whether it's French or Italian. But, like, honestly, if there's no collision of cultures, you're not getting any kind of cuisine anywhere. It's going to be pretty bland, you know, and... I look at what America is as food, and it's genuinely everything else, right? It's not America. It's literally immigrant food. And I'd argue that if you're going to say American food is anything, majority of American food to me is probably food from the 
uh, American slice, right? Like so much of our food is from black culture and no one quite wants to see the truth in that, but I do think it is. What are some of the dishes that are from that? Would you say? Everything from the South. You know, like that's really the American South to me is the only true original American cuisine we have. Right. Um, so when I go to Charleston, I feel like that is some some vein, whether it's grits or whether it's how we eat beans or um, the spread of spices. All of that stuff sort of came from like the Charleston area. Um it's not just like fried chicken and biscuits and, and some of the more stereotypical iconic foods. It's all of these little things that sort of add up. And if I could say that if America is a hodgepodge of a lot of different cultures, I would say, I'm not, I can't put a percentage, I would say a good portion of that comes from the American South. And if you're going to say that the American South has some kind of cuisine, that a lot, a lot of that cuisine comes from slavery. Um, and that comes from Africa and a lot of those, the like rice, for instance, and the rice culture that we have and so on and so forth. I'm not a, I'm not a anthropologist. I'm not a historian in this regard. But it's when I look at food and I see where it all comes from, I'm like, oh, it, it's pretty much a main line from there. Um, and then you have all of these other things and it's constantly shifting and it's constantly morphing. If you just look at Sichuan food, if you look at Chinese food in New York City, the past 25 years, it's gone from localized in uh, Chinatown, right? And I remember moving here or, and coming back in the mid-90s and it was about the discovery of the soup dumpling, right? And like yeah, people Joe did Shanghai. Joe Shanghai. Yeah. And that was like all the rage. And now you have hot pots and Sichuan food here is tremendous. You have so many iterations. Now the East Village of New York is probably like, the third wave of Chinese food in America. Like, how is that not American, right? And when you're using American ingredients, you're on American soil, American terroir, that to me is like some of the most exciting stuff that can happen when you see it evolve right before your very eyes. And ultimately, I don't think a lot of people look at that. But in 25 years, Chinese food in New York City has changed dramatically. It's not just no longer... Nomwa Tea Parlor, which is fantastic and it's iconic. I mean, it's so much more diverse. And that diversity is what I think makes up American food. It's like neither here nor there. And I think most people would want to say that American food is hamburgers and hot dogs. Well, that didn't come from America either, right? <laughs> Definitely didn't. The hot dog came from Europe and so did the hamburger, <laughs> right? Whether it's uh, Lewis's luncheonette or not, like, the idea of that stuff originated elsewhere. So um, I don't know. I, 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 I think that we have a hard time describing what American food is. If anything, it's fast food now. But at the core, I, I, I see it as anything that's not sort of what whatever people perceive that iconic imagery in their head is of apple pies and baseball and stuff like that. Maybe that was the truth 100, 150 years ago. But today, I think it's, that's the furthest thing from what American food actually is. As our country kind of become, takes a turn towards a bit more isolationism, do you think that would affect cuisine? Do you think that there's going to be more immigrant inspiration for cuisine? Or is there going to be kind of a pushback on that? This might sound incredibly insane, 
I sort of feel like uh, if I believe in Darwinism, right, I feel like deliciousness as a as a human trait is something that is universal. And it's almost like a meme. You can almost, and I believe IBM actually created some kind of algorithm with AI where they can sort of come up with logical food combinations that might evolve when you have collisions of culture, right? So <clears throat> I, I sort of in my heart believe that certain combinations of food will, certain combinations of food that really encapsulate truly delicious things that aren't universal. And I'm not saying every single person is going to like it, but there are things out there, I believe, in the world that when you put it together and there's a combination of ingredients and it's applied with certain culinary technique, it's going to be super delicious. And that left to its own devices, it'll actually find its way. I really believe that. The only thing that prevents that from happening is culture and cultural ignorance. And a lot of this sort of xenophobia that that might be seen towards people from the Middle East or from Latin America, that only slows that growth down. I still believe it'll happen. The only time it won't, won't happen is when you have, like, a totalitarian state. But at the end of the day, if you look at, like, Malaysia or Burma, Malaysian food to me is super exciting because you have indigenous culture of Malaysia, you have Chinese culture, and you have India. And it's now merged over, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years into something uniquely its own. It wasn't forced together. I guess technically you could say that some people might have been, you know, forced to immigrate there. But left to its own devices, it's created its own thing. It's like food in some ways is almost like the Galapagos Island, depending on where you're at. And you can almost see it evolve. And that's so exciting to me. And what makes me sad is when someone through ignorance says that shouldn't be, that, that can't go with this, right? And we've seen this time and time again. Chinese food, that's not very good, right? You're going to get sick from eating Chinese food. Um, you name it, right? We've, we've seen throughout history people stereotype whole groups of people through their food. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. And I, it just, it's going to win. I really believe somehow deliciousness will always win out. Yeah, I do feel like ultimately, you know, food is prevailing. Uh, in my hometown, there's only 10,000 people there. We got a Thai restaurant in the past five years, and that was a huge development. And I feel like it really kind of changed people's perspective on on Thai culture even uh, in the town. Um, you, you said, you know, totalitarian states are the only place where maybe this kind of inspiration would have trouble happening. But Anthony Bourdain has touched on this idea that even under duress, some of the best dishes can surface. Yes. Do you agree with that? 100%. But when someone says that something is not valid, like the AOC, uh, I don't think it's the AOC. I can't, I, I hate it so much. I can never remember the name of the, the governing body that determines what is actually Italian enough to be pizza, right? Like it's so ridiculous. It's all a marketing scam, but like, it's a governing body. And like most governing bodies, there's going to be some serious flaws, I think. And it's very clear that like, who determines what is pizza? It's so insane to me when you think that the tomato itself isn't even Italian, right? Like, how can you say that this designated area of San Marzano tomatoes, if you don't use this, then it's not pizza, right? Like, it's, it's ridiculous. And you can see how certain cultures 
don't change, their food becomes stagnant. Num- one reason is it's really good to begin with, and they should be proud of it. But, like, this is why I, I'm actually fearful of people that are proponents of authenticity. I think there's two kinds, again, like, of authenticity. The only authenticity that I, I'm a champion of is one that is trying to preserve and trying to educate because no one else knows what is actually real or false. Someone needs to carry that narrative. And when I, I, I for instance, like, it's unfortunate that we don't have, and I know this because I had to do this thing with Dave Arnold uh, a few years back about what food was in Manhattan's pre-1492, right? Like, we don't even have records of that. That's gone, right? We have no idea. And if there is records, it's written by the people that won history there. So... That's problematic, and I only come up with that because I just thought of it, but there, I'm sure there's multitudes of examples of people's histories through food just, like, vanished. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to live in that world. So, Well, what's an example of a, of a dish that you think has been well-preserved over time? Hmm. I think a dish that I think has been well-preserved over time is, like, country ham. And here's the thing is, I really believe sort of like left to our own devices. The only thing that genuinely separates humanity is the fact that it, like it's almost like a Jared Diamond approach, like is your your access to resources. So over the years, as we've domesticated the pig, it's not a surprise to me that everywhere you can potentially cure hams, we've cured hams. You know what I mean? Like, and there's like a ham belt. It's like probably like 100 kilometers around the world and everywhere where there's a perfect environment to to salt and to hang hams, we hang hams. And they're all delicious, all the way to China, to Parma, to Iowa, to Kentucky and Tennessee. It's all in the same, like, latitude. So, again, when I look at that, I'm like, who can really lay claim to anything? That sounds like aliens came down and put <laughs> hams everywhere around the world to me. You know, like, that's when I see it's like, that is as as uh, you know. I love those dishes that were invented pre refrigeration, and out of necessity, like oh, we need to cure this ham so we have it for travel and for winter months, and not only we're we going to cure it, we're going to make it more delicious. Like those are the kinds of foods that I just think are beautiful because if you do it right, you're literally doing it the same way that generations and generations of people have done before in the past. Like, it's one of the few things you can do today that with all the technology that we have, it's the same that it's always been done. Hmm. What were we talking about before? Well, we were talking about how, you know, even under duress, Mm. amazing cuisines can surface. Yeah. I mean, just to quickly talk about that, it's like, it's assimilation that kills, like, the, the new, right? And this monolithic thing that I feel like food tries to be is something that has to be, like, fought against because it's a march towards the efficiency, I feel like, that oftentimes ruins the diversity and deliciousness of food. And that assi- and I think assimilation in today's day and age is probably the closest thing we'll have to someone saying, like, if you like this, then, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna expel you from our country or something like that. Like, like um, like growing up, it was really hard to say I like Korean food, right? Um, and I and I don't think that's going to be the case. It's 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 weird to me. I'm 41 years old, and I remember being uh, like seven years old and being made fun of because of the lunches that my mom would make. And I would have to tell my mom, please don't. I'd rather I would throw my 
my lunch away that my mom would make because I was so fearful of being made fun of again. And that kind of memory is still playing out in my life today, which is weird because if I was packing those, if I was bringing those packed lunches today in school, it would be seen as pretty cool, which again is not that long of a time frame. Now, all of a sudden, how could that one culture truth about this food not being valid and now it's very cool? Like, that's very hard for my, like, my brain to wrap my head around. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't even understand how that's possible. And that acceptance now is happening more, more and more and more, which is why you sort of even get to the realm of appropriation. Like, that's the hot topic in food today. Um, and that's a whole nother, you know, year-long conversation we can have. <laughs> well, I mean, do you think we should be afraid of appropriating food? I've had this conversation a lot, and oftentimes I've now come to the conclusion of what David Simon has, uh, uh, w- which we had on our show last year. And, uh, you know, his claim is that's what America is. And when we do it really well, that's the best of America. And simultaneously, it's also the worst of America when we do it poorly. That's a lot to unpack. So I don't know exactly how to feel about that. And for me, I've been working through this process in my head of what is acceptable. And I think a lot of it is just for myself, and I'm sure that sort of culture at large could benefit from not acting on something immediately, like withholding your judgment. I've used this example a lot. I don't know why I choose Buffalo, but I'll choose Buffalo, New York. And if I see some individual chef all of a sudden proclaiming that they make kimchi, and let's just say they're you know, a white American, white male American. And they're profiting from it and they're, you know, becoming famous for their kimchi. My initial default setting is to get angry, is to not support them, is to almost try to do everything in my power to make it impossible for them to make kimchi again. Because they didn't have to go through suffering. They didn't have to go through the ridicule. And more importantly, it's like, I would rather someone that's Korean second generation, first generation experience that success. But if they happen to make better kimchi, you know, like I have to respect that. But I have to check myself because I have to ask myself, what do I believe in as a person? Do I believe in diversity? Do I believe in acceptance, inclusion? Do I want everyone to like see the benefits of Korean culture. That's like the only thing I can speak about. I, I can't speak about any other food culture, right? So forgive me if I, it's like too Korean-centric. If they can make great kimchi, and the only way that maybe they'll learn to really appreciate Korean culture is by me supporting them. If I tear them down, if I say, screw you, you can't do this anymore, I may turn them into a bitter enemy towards Korean people. You know, like, I think I just have to be a lot more accepting and to be a lot more generous with my time and my thoughts rather than be bitter and to tell someone they can't do something for no good reason. Because the, 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 the negative position I'm taking is, I think, one of the reasons why we have problems in food, right? Like building bridges instead of building walls yeah. from these different cultures. Well, to shift gears a little bit, you know, all the guests that we've had on for this season that we're working on for the podcast, you know, we've talked a lot about different artists that might have influenced them. And I feel like a lot of the ideas that you are kind of swimming in 
there's a lot of artists that are kind of adjacent to those ideas. Are there some artists that you think of? I mean, in Ugly Delicious, in the first episode at least, uh, there's a Bob Dylan clip that comes mm. up. That felt pretty intentional to me. Could you talk about that? Wow. You know, I, I get so hesitant to talk about artistry and, and food, which is weird because I think it's without a doubt, a lot of the things I'm talking about are artistic in expression, but to articulate it myself is so hard for me to do. I don't know why, uh, because I think I've been brainwashed that it's just cooking, right? And maybe it's defensive. I, I'm not sure. But when we were putting that thing together, you know, I didn't even know that you could use clips and you could get these things. And Morgan is a, Morgan Neville, who who made this with me, and he's won an Oscar, and he he did the absolutely stupendous Mr. Rogers documentary, was like, hey, I got an idea, and, and this song, It's All Right, Ma, They're Only Bleeding, if you listen to those lyrics, it sort of encapsulates the time of when Dylan was writing that song and sort of where food was at right now. And um, I don't know how to convey that more than what I, <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always get weirded out by talking about all the parallels. But the weird thing is, is I only think about food and parallels to culture. So... So when you were a kid, were you watching, you know, a lot of chefs were on TV at the time coming up. I mean, were you watching like Julia Child on TV or Jacques Pepin? Grew up watching Julia Child exclusively PBS. <laughs> we didn't have cable till I got into like high school, I think. And PBS was something where I learned so much about cooking. My favorite show ever in cooking was Great Chefs of the West, Great Chefs of the Midwest. It was a series that taught me about France as a youngster, right? Like, I don't know why I watch these cooking shows. Martin Yan um, was important to me, um, but I never thought that it was going to be a career. What did you think you were going to be doing? Well, my dad wanted me to be a professional golfer. I think my dad, my mother wanted me to be something more traditional Asian-American success, like a lawyer, banker, doctor's just not going to happen with me. But <laughs> I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. If I did better in school, I probably wouldn't be cooking today. You studied religion in college, right? I did, yeah. What drew you to that? I grew up in a very, very religious household. My grandmother on both sides converted to Christianity when they were in Korea. And I don't know, there's something about Korean culture and Christianity that just like is a perfect storm. And uh, if you're not, like the joke is, if you're not doing a dry cleaner or a bodega store, you're opening a church in America. And my father came from a giant family, um, like 11 kids, 13. I think a couple of them passed away early on in, in the war. And amongst all of those, uh, like, offspring, my cousins, like, so many of them went into ministry, like, a lot. Even my sister went to seminary school. And it was impressed upon me at an early age, going to school, Sunday school, and just Bible study, reading the Bible over and over and over again, that like, oh, the whole concept of Christianity is one day he's going to come back and then some people are going to go to heaven, some people are going to go to hell. And that just stuck with me forever. And I was the, I was a kid in Sunday school that would always ask questions as like, I don't understand this, right? Like that seems to me like pretty mean as to why some people should go to hell. And I couldn't get over the idea as a kid, why would some people that didn't hear the scripture or the word of God go to hell? I would ask that question. So if someone never heard like this sermon or whatever, 
and they haven't accepted Jesus Christ, are they going to go to hell? And I would present these like moral conundrums of theology to these people, and I don't think they appreciate it at all. And it didn't help that I was also a class buffoon too, but (laughs) I I just didn't know anything else, and I had a resistance to it, and it was just something that I had to be is religious and and observant, and I just never quite drank the Kool-Aid. I went to um, private school, Catholic school. Studying Catholicism was a stark contrast to what I grew up learning, and that just left a giant impression on me. Um, And then it was like, wait, you have Presbyterian, you have this great schism, and now you have Catholic. And then it just like constantly made me understand that like no one really knows what the hell they're talking about. And then I got to college, and I had a great time in college, which meant that I did a lot of drinking, I went out a lot, and I did barely any studying. And a lot of, quite frank, a lot of the religious studies classes were all past like noon. So I could get there in time. And they were also the only classes that I got good grades in. That's it. And it dawned on me because I think I was going to be an econ major or whatever, whatever. But for whatever reason, religion was something that I could understand. And in college, I started to go down uh, all of these different avenues of like comparative religion. And I, I became enamored with Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and all of these things that I think, think are more um, <clears throat> philosophies and always in contrast to Christianity. And, and like, I think like Walter Kaufman, uh, this guy that wrote the critique of religion and philosophy, and he was one of my professors, professors at Princeton. He he said that those that grow up in the faith are the most critical of it. And I just compared everything to the faith that I grew up in. And I thought that it was just an imperfect system for me. And I studied religion not for religious sake because I'm not that religious actually at all. I wanted to study religion as to why people become religious. And along the way, I studied a bunch of stuff that still has impressed upon me like how I think today. You know? Yeah, I feel like a lot of what you're saying, I assume it would translate to, to what you've been doing with food in some way. Yeah, I mean, one of the most earth-shattering things that happened to me was when I learned about uh, Mahayana Buddhism, um, which is, you know, a form where there's bodhisattvas, which are individuals that have reached enlightenment um, and escaped the cycle of samsara, right? And they're, instead of going to heaven... They've decided to withhold that, delay their gratification, and, and, and like almost made a pact. None of us are going to enjoy heaven or nirvana until everyone enjoys heaven and nirvana. Every sentient life being has to sort of get through that cycle. And I just thought that was unequivocally the most beautiful thing I've ever read, right? Like the concept. I was like, wait a second here. Like this is... Way better than, hey, on average lifespan of, of humanity for, for the ages, it's probably what, like 45 years or something like that. You're telling me that you have 45 years to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't, let's just say it's a thousand years you have to, to, to do that versus infinity. I mean, like, that's just not right. Like, come on. Like, I just could not buy that. And for whatever reasons, that was so much more thoughtful and and compassionate that it really shaped how I thought about stuff. Because as a person, that's not how I think. I don't think I'm as compassionate and empathetic. I'm probably incredibly selfish 
and all of these things that are not like positive attributes. And I think that by interacting and learning these things, I, it's tried to like get me out of that shell. I'm just realizing too how insane this must sound because <laughs> I am far from an expert in any of this stuff. Oh my God. I never talk about this stuff. Well, what did your parents think when you pivoted to food? Were they supportive? What do they think of your food now? Um, my mom thinks it's too salty. And um, for a long time, my dad thought it was a hobby. He's like, when are you going to do something serious? Um, and quite frankly, I think all my religious studies helped me embrace some kind of panic that I had about what I'm going to do with my life. And, you know, I try to do everything else but cooking. There's a concept I learned in, um, oh my God, I can't believe I remember all this stuff. History of Christian Thought in the West by Professor Frank Patrick, and it was one of the few classes I got like a C plus in, in religion. And I never, I did so poorly in it, but I learned of this idea of via negativa, and the early theologians of the Christian church would sort of meditate on, they'd, they'd understand, like, as a basis, like, God's ineffable. You cannot discover what God is. But in theory, then we can discover what God is not. So God's not this lamp. God's not this bottle of water. And they would go over and over as, like, almost a meditation to, to sort of, the more they understood what God wasn't, in theory, they could get closer to God. And I swear to God, I use this as my own way of like, what do I want to do? Like, like every college graduate, like, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, if it was good enough to figure out that idea, I was like, maybe I can get close to what exactly I want to do in my own life from answering phones in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to working in restaurants as a server and as a busboy, to working at a bar, to working at a golf store, to trying to do competitive golf. I did so many different things to teach in English, to working a little bit in finance. I didn't have any inclination that food was going to be for me. I almost dropped out of college, but like the reasons weren't there to go into cooking. Uh, it was more out of escape. And I felt by the age of 22, I had an idea that sitting at a desk doing something meaningless, like tallying numbers together or collating papers, it just, I was like, come on, like that is literally the definition of absurdity. I got to find something that's useful to me. So I literally did everything I could to burn all my bridges so I could never go back to a sort of a traditional lifestyle, right? My dad was so upset, so upset, because he basically worked his entire life to make sure I would never become a cook because he knows how hard that life is. He worked 30 years in the restaurant business. And the only thing as to why I wanted to go was I thought it was honorable. <laughs> I thought it was an honest way to live, that I could work really hard, and it wasn't about accumulating a lot of wealth. And it's something that I was terrible at and I could get better at. And that was basically why I did it. I had no grandiose vision as, oh, this is what my life might be like. At that time in 1999, 2000, when you told your friends, and I was so blessed to have like the education that I had, it was basically telling someone that I was like enlisting in the army or something, like not even like less prestigious sometimes, right? Like, like, what? You're going to be like, help? You're going to, what are you doing? And now it's so weird again, because like now it's almost like cool to say you're going to be a cook. And I did it because I was allergic to sort of the world at large. And I wanted to live on the periphery. I wanted to discover myself. And I, I, I honestly didn't think I would find myself in the kitchen, but it's obviously where I, where I was most comfortable. Well, it seems to have worked out. 
<laughs> to put it bluntly, it, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't by like some grand scheme. Right. You know what I mean? Like I had no idea what I was doing. I just was like, oh, I like this. I I think that there's a bunch of people in this kitchen that are all lunatics, and they couldn't probably make their own bed or pay their bills on time, or show up on time to anything else outside in the regular world. But when they put on their whites and they're in the kitchen, it's like they're like the top surgeon in America. You know, it's like crazy. And the competitiveness and the mentorship. And I love I love culture. I love teams. I love sports. It was like a sport to me. And it was something that there was all of this esoteric knowledge that was esoteric to me because I wasn't part of it that I could go down. I could read all these cookbooks. I could study all these chefs. And I tr truthfully, like, I am allergic to work unless it's something that I can pour myself in. And for a year, over a year, I never took a day off. And that's when I sort of had a realization, like, wait a second. Like, I never work this hard. I'm never willing to miss hanging out with my friends. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And that's when I realized, like, oh, I think this is what I need, I need to be doing. Kind of a nice, quick way for me to ask this question that points to our season theme is, is if you had to list three heroes in your life, who would you list? Oh, man. These are the hardest questions because <laughs> um, they're constantly changing. Like Wolfgang Puck right now is definitely someone that I would love to emulate my career because I think he's actually misunderstood. But his legacy on food in America, like, it's funny. Like, the most important chef in America was not born in America. He's from Austria, right? Like, fundamentally altered gastronomy in America. And, and uh, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be able to, like, sort of potentially follow in his footsteps. That's, like, so crazy to me. Um, on the culinary end, you know, like, I think that the whole generation of American chefs that don't get the credit that they deserve, um, that sort of got into cooking before it was even a, a profession, right? The, we we're talking about right after the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America was formed, the Alfred Pataleys, the the Charlie Palmers of the world, the Rick Moonins, they're, they're this band of American chefs that were very popular in the mid to late 90s, but I think today they don't get the the recognition they deserve for paving the way for 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 entire industry today. Um, because they were the first ones to be like, wait, we need to go to Europe. <laughs> we need to figure this stuff out. And and there's so many of them. Like Alex Lee has, he was the, you know, Danielle Balud. Like I could go on and on on just a culinary end. Um, and uh, I'm a real geek on culinary history. Um, it's really important to me that I know what came before me. Um, so I could list every chef possible um, and why they're important to me. But off the top of my head, yeah, Alfred Portali, Tom Colicchio, Thomas Keller, uh, Alice Waters, uh, massively important to me because these are people that I got to know. I never thought that I would get to know these people. Um, and I, I don't know where else to, to talk about because we could be here all day talking about <laughs> What about chefs. what happened when you met Alice Waters? I, it was such a strange moment. She came into Noodle Bar and she basically gave me a big hug and she basically said... Um, what kind of sugar is this in the ice cream that we made? And she's like, if it's not the best kind of sugar, this isn't going to, even if it tastes good, you need to, you need to strive harder. You need to strive higher to like make this better. And it immediately showed to me not only the provenance of ingredients, but also so many of the people that I just mentioned 
which is so, uh, you know, uh, how should I say, indicative of my my profession and my peer group is almost everyone is as dedicated to building their own restaurants as to like giving back to the community. And Alice literally said, it's all about the kids. What are you going to do to help out the kids, David? I swear to God, it was like literally a minute in, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we got in conversation with Edible Schoolyard. And, 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 uh, I'll never forget that. I was like, she's a, she's a real hero of mine. And, and now she's taken on this, Again, I feel very blessed to have a lot of people that have taken parental mentorship-like roles in my life, and Alice is one of them. So when you're working with these chefs that are coming up, is it about, you know, find, helping them find their voice, find their story or their way of expressing, or is it about kind of channeling the momofuku <clears throat> way of doing things? I think it's a little mixture of both. There's a paradox there. I'm trying to teach them how to follow the rules and to understand the rules, so when to determine when to break the rules, right? At any given situation, I don't want them just to blindly follow the rule. I want to teach them to analyze the situation and to know when it's appropriate to defy the rules. Um, and that's a weird way of describing like how do I how do I sort of cultivate uh, someone that's talented and how to get the most out of themselves. And I I, I don't know if I've gotten better at explaining it because it's very hard. Um, I think it's entirely about the culture that we create, and and uh, I I think um, I think it's <laughs> it's going to sound crazy again, but this is some kind of religious understanding. It's about free will, and I've learned that the only way I can get someone to do something on their own volition is if they want to do it, and I can force them. I can get anyone to do my bidding. I can tell them you got to make this dish exactly the way I want it. But if they don't buy into it, and maybe it's very successful for the short term, right? And very maybe it's a very efficient way of teaching. But ultimately, they're going to tire it. They're gonna they're not gonna believe in it, or they're gonna they're just gonna say that this is not for me, right? I'll do it out of fear. But so much of a kitchen and a high quality kitchen is, I think, no different than any organization that is trying to operate a high level. When your back is turned and you're no longer supervising them and they're on their own making the decision, are they going to make the right decision versus the wrong decision? And the only thing that's separating them from making the wrong decision is personal integrity because no one's ever going to make, no one's going to know. And so many times in a kitchen, you're trying to teach someone to do the dumb, long way. And like, let's just say you have a cook that's making a dish and one of the steps that they do can save them 30 minutes if they just cheat. And the reality is the end result will lead to no one ever knowing the difference. I have to try to create an environment where I'm trying to get that cook to take the long, stupid way. It's so inefficient. And ultimately, I think being a chef is one of the hardest jobs to motivate people because there's no lure of a giant paycheck or bonus or stock options. You're really trying to teach someone to better themselves through their own personal integrity. And that's hard. Well, thanks so much for coming in, David. We really appreciate being able to have you here in the studio. Yeah. Chefs James Beard and Julia Child were the earliest pioneers of bringing thoughtful takes on cooking and food to television. In this excerpt from American Masters, James Beard, America's First Foodie, 
Author Kathleen Collins describes this pivotal moment in television history. Good evening. Well, here we are again, and uh, as usual, I'm uh, left home to prepare the supper. Elsie presents James Beard in I Love to Eat, began in 1946 on NBC, and it was the first nationally televised cooking show. No one really had a television, so it was not really seen by many people. The televisions that existed for public consumption in those days were in department store windows, they were in bars. So a lot of his audience was men who were watching him before the Friday night fights. Today we're going to make chili con carne. And we're going to have a session of kitchen clinic. And we're going to discuss sponge cakes. It wasn't really the right time for Epicurean delights to be presented on television. And then Julia Child appears in 1963 on The French Chef. Well, of course, she didn't intend to change the landscape. What's missing in this picture? The goose. And here it is. We're cooking a goose today on The French Chef. Julia Child was not only bringing in French food at the height of its popularity, but also was a very charming entertainer. She just was her natural self and had a great personality. And here it is, just sitting up, waving at you. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Tsunashima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The interview with author Kathleen Collins is an excerpt from the 2017 episode of American Masters, James Beard, America's First Foodie, directed by Elizabeth Federici. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. See you in a couple weeks. <laughs>